This is iFanboy Booksplode, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Books 1 through 4. My name is Connor Kilpatrick, and I'm here with my co-host, Josh Flanagan. Call me Donatello. And thanks to the patrons over at patreon.com slash ifanboy who unlocked this show, we are reviewing this month the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles books one through four that were published by First Graphic Novel, whatever that is, (laughs) that supposedly collects the first 12 issues of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the seminal indie comic from the 80s by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, and with a bunch of support staff on production and lettering and things. This was actually brought up by the patrons in our patron hangout. Well, they first asked a bunch of questions about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. And then they said, why don't you review those early comics? I've never read them. And I was like, oh, shit, we should. Because I, as a kid, owned two of the four and never read the other two till now. <laughs> I own three of the four. And I definitely read the issues in the middle. Maybe. I'm not sure. And I have the original books. They're here. And, and it's very me, by the way, to only have three of the four and then never do anything to reconcile Which one did you not have the fourth one? Two. I have uh, the second one. Which, right, it, which is even more annoying. I had two and four. Oh, geez. Which is interesting. I think based on the covers, I'm looking at them, and those would have been the covers I would have been probably drawn to the most. I don't know hmm. why I had them or how. or you know, This is part of my pre-going to the comic store every week days of reading comics where I just had a, bo- a box full of random comics. And in that box was, were these two Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle graphic novels. I would have read these over and over and over again. And I guess not cared what happened before, in, the, in between or after. That's valid. And I think that... When that, you're a kid, uh, yeah. I just yeah. keep reading the same stories over and over. That's fine. And you know what else is interesting is I use these... I could draw a little bit as a kid. Sure. And I probably could now if I had kept up with it, but I stopped basically in college. And I would use these turtles as templates. There were drawings in these books that I was like, oh, right, I drew that over and over and over again. You know, it's funny that there was a really specific panel at some point, and I was looking at like the like the turtle's leg, like the mm-hmm. knee down, and I was like, I drew that. Not <laughs> like, But just that specific shape, I remember sort of working on it and trying to make it look like that because I thought yeah. it, was, it was really cool. Yeah, I know I read this a lot. These books are beat up and worn. The spine's going on one. And it isn't just because they're old. Right, you had to read them to break them. Yeah, and it's really interesting. So, Because for a little while, I think the first volume, definitely, I was like, all right, yep, yep, okay. And then the sort of middle bits, I didn't know as well. And I got to that fourth volume, and we're, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. But that really like brought a lot back to me in a really interesting ways, I thought. I think we'll get into each book. But two, I, I think half I really remembered. And the other half, I was like, I don't remember this at all, which is crazy because I probably read it a hundred times. Mm-hmm. Before, I definitely remembered all of it all the way through. So that's interesting as well. So uh, let's talk, I guess, real brief history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Published originally in 1984 by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird under their Mirage Studios banner so-called because there wasn't really a studio. It was just them in their kitchen. Mm-hmm. And the first issue did actually pretty well for a first issue unknown book in the 80s. It sold over 3,000 copies. They went to three printings on it. But Peter Laird was a little bit media savvy, and he sent out press kits to over 100 newspapers across the country. They got a fair amount of coverage because papers are always looking for stories. And by the second issue, they were selling 15,000 copies. And then it went from there. Wow. 
this is one of the seminal indie comics with an X of the 80s. This is like one of the pillar books. And so it's going to make my review of this interesting at the end. I've been thinking a lot about how I was going to rate this when I got to it because it's complicated. This is one of the pillars. Like if you talk about the pillars of the 80s indie comics scene with comics with an X, this is one of the pillars. Pillars of the, of the comics industry, pillars of the media landscape. It's still pumping out movies and toys and TV shows every year. It hasn't stopped. It is one of the most important IPs, and I say that grudgingly, mm-hmm. ever created in the comic world. It looks like I was checking, and um, so this book started in 84. The issues that we're covering here kind of go through 87, from what I understand, more or less. The TV show started yep. in, in late 87, and yep. I was not, at age 10, I was not cool enough to have known this prior to that. However, as I sort of look at the dates and everything, like I picked up on these comics real fast yeah. after that because i at some point as a kid like i was on issue i want to say in the teens oh wow yeah no like and i have them somewhere downstairs but like i was buying them as they came out and they slowed and went away but i was definitely buying like the issues as they came out and of course as always happens with those things like sort of the release dates got further and further out so i only ended up with a handful of them but i was an issue reader of this at a certain point that's incredible i, I don't think i ever read it in issues mm-hmm you know, as a kid, like you said, it by 87, just a few years after this book comes out, it hits the airwaves. You know, I watched the Teenage Mutant Turtles every day. It ran for 10 seasons. Changed everything. I had the toys. You know, I had all the turtle toys. I had Shredder. I had all that stuff. It became a ubiquitous kids brand. And then there was films, live action films. And they were very smart to right away tap into this and then, you know, ride that train until they sold the property fairly recently to Nickelodeon. But yeah, I mean, it was everywhere as a kid. The, the turtles were as big as anything. You know, you had your Star Wars, then you had your G.I. Joe Transformers, and then this was sort of the next epoch, I think. Yeah. Now, all of that. Wait, is, I want to say one thing about the cartoon yeah, before please. we get to the, the one thing I, I thought about while reading this book. I was like, one thing the cartoon did smartly was they gave every turtle their own color. Oh, it's. it's the red is cool. The uniform red bandana is cool. However. There were many times in the book where I had no idea who was talking because unless they're holding their weapon, you have no yeah. idea. And it was also, I mean, the book was in black and white. So even if, right. you know, initially. Those versions are colored. But yeah. The versions that we read were colored. But when you read the issues, they were black and white, which is also really interesting. But I also remember thinking, I mean, you know, I have enough of like a nascent punk rock thing in me that I was like, I remember thinking, oh, it was cool. They all had red. But. It is really hard to tell them apart. But what's interesting, too, is that at the very end bit of this, uh, late in the last volume, they've got Donatello going around and he has a purple do-rag on. And I was like, yeah, that's I saw interesting. That. They hadn't adjusted it. I mean, I think I would have been very upset in <laughs> retrospect if like they went through and did the – this book would look completely different if they did the colors. Oh, for sure. I just found it hard to identify them sometimes. That's all. Absolutely. And I found that interesting. I knew who they were and I wasn't really ever lost, but I, I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, that's because the other thing is just visually they are identical. Yeah, that's the other thing. They have no characteristics that are different. There's not a taller one. Leo has two straps and it's other than that, it's the weapon they hold, but there's no other identifying features. And the last thing I'll say in regards to the cartoon is one of the things that we talked about on the Hangout, I don't, I don't think you, you might have missed that one. Was it your birthday one you didn't go to? I think mm-hmm. it might have been that one. One of the things, that I, I did a poll, who, who's your favorite turtle? Uh, live poll for the viewers, expecting fully that Michelangelo would run away with it because the cartoon made him the cool one, right? The one everyone liked the most. He had the jokes. He was funny. He had his, you, <laughs> you know, he liked You just pizza. said that and I scowled. I was like, what? No. He was the one everyone <laughs> liked and he was the most popular cartoon character. But the comic makes it Raphael. And so yes. when the poll happened and, and Raphael won the poll, I was taken aback 
I was I couldn't believe it, but that's just because I hadn't read a lot of the comics and not realized that the comics made Raphael the cool one. The first feature film also did that too. So it was really closely based on the books, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And and so Raph was definitely like the main character if there was going to be one because of his relationship with Casey. So let's talk about the books. Book one. So this is the first time I'd read it. You'd never read I this. I was very, very surprised. <laughs> oh, 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 wait. Before yeah. we get going, I do, I yeah. do want to say is that this is the first time that I have read these with the foreknowledge that it was heavily influenced and almost a satirical take on Frank Miller's Daredevil, at least at first. That's important to note. And I think maybe people don't know if they have never read the origin of the Turtles is that it, the entire book is a takeoff of Daredevil from the origin in, in which the canister that gives Daredevil his powers falls through. Right. It's the, the same. And gives the Turtles their powers and Splinter as well. Splinter's a takeoff of stick, the hand and the foot. It's all Daredevil. Yes. But it, what's interesting about that is it splinters off splinters. <laughs> they don't hang on to that. No, no, no. But th- that's the back bit, the joke. Yeah, I mean, like to me, I think there's going to be a – well, we'll get to it. I'll, I, it'll be a place where, where what I was thinking fits. Go ahead. All right, so the first volume, book one, was really interesting because, A, the first arc is all about them fighting Shredder, and then he dies. And I was like, oh, shit, okay. And I had forgotten about book four because it's been so long since I read it. But I was a little surprised to see Shredder die in the first arc mm-hmm. of the story. And then it gets very quickly super sci-fi-y, which lasts for like two and a half more books, which I didn't expect either. Not only, they rip through genres very quickly. Yeah. Super sci-fi, then they move into sort of fantasy, then like for a while, there's really not a lot that takes place in the city and sewers. Right. Which I thought was surprising. And it sort of gives credence to the fact like in the beginning, they had like a basic little concept based on a drawing and they tore through that. And then in very short order, they were like, let's throw everything at the wall. And I think it's kind of exhilarating, right? It's like, yes, beyond the factual idea, this is a pillar is that this really encapsulates for me that 80s mm-hmm. sort of mania in indie comics where you could just do anything. And you don't have to be like, this is not polished comic book work not at first no the art is especially at the beginning isn't yeah professional what we would call professional now but it works and it's really i think when kevin eastman does most of the drawing although there are some guest artists including dave sim i think it really works as an art comic art and even if it's rough even if it's even if it's rough around the edges and isn't perhaps what we would call today really good art it really works with the context of what it is and to the story it's telling and i think it's really fun a couple things there is that one is it's never really clear who's doing what the thing is, is by Eastman and Laird. I know they well, both you can tell draw. By looking at it. Well, the thing is, though, to me, when I was a kid, I always had a very specific idea about who did what and what it looked like. And I always like Laird style more. Because well, Laird does one of the backup stories and his style is really different than Eastman. So you can see yeah, right Yeah, but away. if you watch, like, eventually, like, it evens out. And I feel like it's got more of a Simon and Kirby kind of thing going on where they both kind of worked on it and they don't really tell you what's mm-hmm. what. I don't know if that's true, but the fact is, like, it's not super clear. And I kind of like that. And the the other sort of aspect of that is it is very 80s based, but part of that is the idea that like these guys clearly grew up reading the comics of the 60s and 70s because Mm -hmm. they're so excited to do all of those genres and then also combine them with sort of the modernizing that was taking place in the 80s, you know, before 1986, but the stuff that sort of led to it, like it's all sort of here. Like there's a little bit of, there's obviously genre breaking, but there's a little bit of like, hey, we're not covered by the Comics Code Authority. So, you know, let's see what we can do here. I don't know. It's just like at first, it's just like these excited kids. Laird was a little older. Eastman was like 22 when they started this, you know, and it is like a ball of energy. And then at a certain point, 
like the first one or two is, hey, we're we're going to do this thing and we're going to have fun with them, whatever. And then people start paying attention to it and they up their game, I think, considerably. Yep. I think it's a much better book by the fourth book than our stars. It's obscenely better. But I think that a lot of there's a lot of things in the first volume that are worth something. First of all, the design of the characters is essentially unchanged from yep. what we look at today. That's how strong a design that went along with this name that they had. There's a lot of credit they should get for that. It's true. And, you know, the Mousers, like, those are the same as they look. It's sort of driving around in this VW van that they have, the way that the city looks. Like, they set a scene really well. Now, initially, it's, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, etc. Then you've got these sort of, I mean, you can tell, like, they they want to do like a Frank Miller type of stuff. But this isn't even what Frank Miller stuff looked like. Frank Miller stuff looked like this when he got to Dark Knight Returns, but not necessarily uh, at this point. So 84, it's just, it's interesting. It's it's part of a whole. I think the main difference is Frank Miller lived in Manhattan. Yeah. Time, and these guys lived in Northampton, Massachusetts and Maine. And New this was not a New York City, a recognizable New York City. This was a New York City gleaned from media. Yes, this was a, a New York City taken from Marvel Comics, I think. Yeah, this was not at all like what New York City was like at the time, nor would anybody be constantly driving a VW van around Manhattan if they lived there. I think it's the second or third issue here. In There's a long car chase. <laughs> and I thought, oh, they're doing a long car chase in comic book form. That's awesome. They're living in the form to the extent that like, here's a long ninja fight. Here's a long fight with the Mousers. It's very good in that sense of the action. We talked about this in some other book recently where like, hey, there's not a lot of fight scenes. And like yeah. they are telling a story in comic book form and doing action scenes in comic book form. We see it so compressed now, especially again, and this happens in the fourth book in a big way. You know, th- there is a, a long sequential action story being told in these books in a way yeah. that we really don't see very often anymore. That kind of freedom with it, which is cool. Yeah, and there's also a little bit of like a Star Wars yeah. vein that goes through the second volume where they get, mm-hmm. they get time and space displaced and they are with the Triceratops people who are kind of like the, the Rock City and Bebop stand-ins where they go to like space bars and they're full of creatures. And like there's clearly a lot from the, what's happening in the world in the 80s at the time that seeps into this book and they're, they're taking in everything and filtering it into the Turtles world and it makes it very interesting and not what I was expecting at all. Tonally, though, there's also a like an interesting little like it's not taking it fully seriously. Like I think they go to a bar and they're like, "Oh, that's space tea," or like something like that. Like it's a little goofy. They have, in all instances, decided to skip over the fact that all of these people wouldn't speak the same language. And well, we I, just I, I, accept I, I love understand that part it. of it. Yes, that's my favorite part. Is that you know we all enjoy sci-fi on the harder side, like mm-hmm. The Expanse, where they try to really scientifically work everything out. But you know, sometimes you just want all the aliens to speak English and. Not have to worry about that stuff and just tell the story. And so that's mm-hmm. what happens here. The turtles get zapped across space. Everyone speaks English. There's oxygen. You know, it doesn't matter because that's not the important thing they're doing here. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of sci-fi I kind of love the most is where they, it's like the Star Trek sci-fi where they just go to a new planet and everybody speaks the same language. So it doesn't matter. And they can tell their allegory for civil rights in America. So that's what I really, you know, like the most. And so, you know, I don't want to deal with the, the turtles having to get a translator and do all, you know, just whatever. They're already turtle ninjas. They already... Couldn't decide how people would react to them anyway. Like sometimes when people see them, they're like, you know, very blase. And other times they're like, what the fuck's happening? These are human-sized turtles. So there was already playing sort of with the conventions of things making sense or just telling a fun story. And I kind of err on the side of telling the fun story. You know what else is interesting is that there's not a lot of focus on or brooding on the fact that they're turtles and they can't exist in the world. There's a little bit like, oh, it's fun to walk around or whatever, but it's not like they're super depressed or angsty they don't feel about trapped people. in the apartment yeah exactly they go out 
in that same vein, and I love it like as they get going later and they have like their little outfits that they wear and and especially sort of by the by the time they leave New York. But then then the other bit is I really like how quickly April like they introduce her really quickly and then she's part of the family pretty right. quick and she kind of wreck it, but they just sort of go with it. Again, like there's not a lot of time wasted on I don't know, we we spent so much time because we've had all the characters that we have now for so long that they're just exploring every single bit of it. And this is just like, go. Yep. You know, and, and and it's awful refreshing in that way. They should have kicked her out when she got the perm, the 80s perm. That was, I, You know, that was, a, that was a side note that I was going to make is I don't really know what happened in the 80s that everyone decided, hey, you know what? Let's make curly hair on everybody look awful. <laughs> but it, it is just, not just in this book. It exists in it, oh, no, has, it's real. It was in Vertigo. It was a real thing. Matt Wagner. I yeah. know, but like there's a very specific comic book version of it that is so consistent across so many books at the time. It's the weirdest thing. She's like, How do you like my hair? And she's like leaning seductively in the doorframe. Mm-hmm. And I was like, It's terrible. Are you asking me? It's pretty <laughs> terrible. You look like you're 10 years older than you are. So it's interesting. As much as I admired the go with itness of mm-hmm. you know, all the genres, I found myself. During the sci-fi part in the middle, wanting them to get back to ninjas. And so, to me, my least favorite parts are the second half of two and book three a little bit. Book three was fun because Dave Sim comes in and Cerebus joins the story. And that's fun. But at the same time, I was like, can we get back to the foot? I like that part. And then they do, mm-hmm. and it's better. And then the half, second half of three and four, four is probably my favorite of the books. I think that they had to come back around. I mean, like I said, I think at the beginning they just threw everything against the wall. I get you it. Said and they, I totally like they that killed they Shredder, and yeah. and then they're like, what else can we do? Bring him back. Yes, but I mean, the fact is they pay it off. Yeah. in a big way. Oh, I four, think. terrific! I was riveted by four. Four was like you know. It's like the revenge of the foot. It's almost like the Empire Strikes Back mm-hmm. issue in the story where the foot gets their revenge for killing Shredder and they almost kill Leonardo. And they burn down April's family's building in the in Lower East Side, which would be worth a lot of money now. And I, then they, in Bro- I believe it's in Brooklyn. Oh, you're right. It's in Brooklyn. That's right. They force the guys to in April and Casey Jones to flee town, go to Northampton where the creators lived. It was good. All right, so they all have existential crisis while they're up there. <laughs> yeah, well, the one th- right, but that but they like they earn it. It isn't yeah, like no, super early. Like we have to care. Okay, so uh, so we're clear. Uh, these books are colorized, mm-hmm. colored. Colorized. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a movie. Ted but Turner the originals were in black and white. The volume I didn't have, I got off of Kindle. IDW has collections that are out that have these books in them, and those are in black and white. So I actually did some time with color and some time with black and white. It's a really beautiful black and white book. And being in color doesn't actually help clear up what you're looking at if you're thinking, Ugh, no, I can't tell these not. guys apart. But as I, I got through the, the end bit, I really want to sp- – so so that first issue of the f- fourth volume is it's Christmas. Yeah. And the idea is the three turtles, April and Splinter, are at the apartment that they're in. And they all each have their own room. And I was like, how does she have this? And then they're like, oh, it's my dad. They own the building. I was like, all right, fair enough. You explained it easily. <laughs> Good enough. And on the bottom bit, we see the stuff that's happening in the apartment. While in the top bit, yes, you see an issue-long fight that Leo is barely holding on to with the the return foot clan who they thought was, you know, no longer a thing. Recently on our show, we talked about the form and what mm-hmm. you're doing with comics. And I think that all of the stuff that they did prior to this, there was some very good art in that. They did a bunch of things. They did awesome big spaceships and, and you know, all that stuff. But as we come back here, Eastman and Laird, however they worked it out, really did some nice comic book stuff in, in such a way that like, I remember this issue. And, and as I was reading it, I thought, man, this is one of the first times that I saw like a visual theme that they were playing with on the page that you can only do in comics. The point counterpoint. I remembered it. The art on Leo, the fighting the entire time is magnificent. 
it's really a wonderful sequential sort of fight sequence. And there's there's no words. So it's, you know, it's Snake Eyes from the G.I. Joe silent issue. Then the the counterpoint of it being at the bottom is you see the turtles have sort of relaxed. They're not always they're not wearing their masks inside. They're in a good mood. They're they're doing Christmas. You know, splinters they're baking, there. They're trimming the tree. They're laughing with April and Splinter while their buddy's getting killed by the foot. Yeah, and they're all in a really good place. And man, they throw him through the window at one point, and it all shatters. You know, I mean, literally and, and figuratively, like everything changes. And one of the things I really love is that their skills as ninja that Splinter taught them are never in doubt. Like they're super competent. They're really good. Training. Yeah. They're good at it, and we don't have to worry about that part. In a way, just like Thor doesn't worry about it, you know, it's just accepted and they all sort of move in. And and then from there, like the next issue is an entire fight scene that goes through a building. And there are scenes in this one that I don't know. I don't know if some of them made it into the movie, but I definitely read this before I saw the movie. But there's a specific scene where Raph hangs out behind to get the people. He's upstairs in the apartment and they're yeah. all taking off and he hangs out and he- it's like he says, Wugga Wugga Gaijin, it's go time. And I was like, holy shit, that's seared on my brain. But that drawing and the confidence in his stance. He is the badass of the group in the comic. He's the one that is the best fighter. Well, I don't know. I think Leo, he's the most raging. Well, Leo's I, the Duke, the Cyclops. He's, yeah, a, exactly. he's, he's obviously extremely competent because he fights off 100 yeah. foot. But like Roth is the one who's going to stand on his own and keep everyone alive. He's the intense one. There's a great scene there. There's like, he almost, he looks at the camera at one point, you know, and is talking to himself and it just, it was very of the time, but also I thought it was actually quite naturalistic. Like it fit and I was like, oh, we're having fun now. Cause at first it's pretty serious. They don't really get their personalities. I don't know if that showed up. They were always there, but they become more pronounced. And maybe that was in the development of the cartoon. That stuff sort of came out a little more and they put into here. They go downstairs. First of all, like we go downstairs for a while, like flushing people out from under the staircases. Yeah, that was good. You can feel it move visually throughout the building. Go down into the store at the bottom, which I don't remember if we knew was there, but I don't care. And and you have this pullout. And I thank God they put it in the book. Yeah. It's a fold out three, three page splash. You know, of this whole store, which when I was, whatever, 10, I thought this is the greatest store on earth. <laughs> it was got comics, three for a dollar. Look on the floor. It's a pair of blue Captain America boots. <laughs> you can get everything here. There's a, there's a, there's a Cerberus back oh, there. Uh, um, well, there's also a back swing there. behind the counter. There's a violin. I always wanted to play a violin. This store has everything. Records? Records and comics? Records. You see see Moxie on the wall there. <laughs> Kevin Eastman's from Maine. That's there. <laughs> this page made me so happy because it, it brought it all back. But I looked around and I thought, man, that Shredder design did not change yeah. going into the cartoon. Almost nothing did. That Shredder design is great. You know, then then Casey Jones shows up. Like it's I boom, loved boom, Casey boom, Jones boom, boom, as a boom. kid. I loved him. Don't know why. Doesn't really earn your love. I liked him in the comic. When he showed up in the movie, I was like, he doesn't sound like I think he was Elias Kataeus. He just didn't sound like he did in my head. And I was kind of always weirded out by that. It wasn't bad. I was just like, ah. That was the first time my like imagination didn't jibe with what I saw. Again, I read this first. I mean, I haven't seen the other ones, but I know who's been cast as him in other versions. And he always seems like he's the most authentically New York in the 80s version of Casey Jones than Absolutely. Like, Stephen and Amell. I, I, uh, yeah, you know. you're absolutely right, and I'm and you're like you're not wrong. I'm saying as a ten year old who'd never been to New York, I was like, oh, but it works. We were super you know. individual aunties back then. And, yes. Uh, so I mean, in this book itself, there is no context for Casey Jones. Bernie gets with a hockey mask. 
he just appears and sa- helps save the day and helps him escape the foot. Well, he's kind but of like a he's kind of a low rent Punisher at first. Yeah, yeah, but we don't know why he doesn't appear previously. Well, in the beginning, in in, in the when the Raff special issue, which is second, I think it's the beginning of the second book, which I've definitely read. He sort of is like a Travis Bickle kind of character like he's watching tv and he's like that tears it and he gets his sports equipment out and then they become friends and then he shows up here for what reason who knows who cares but th- this fourth volume is like right. it went from being well this is really interesting in comic book and historical context and the fourth book so up until three i was going to tell you that as i read it i thought this will be the first one where we talk about what's in there and interesting but we're not gonna gush really and I got to the fourth book and I was like, fuck, they got good. Yeah. Really impressive. Yeah. You know, I was rating each book individually on Goodreads and I think it was like three and a half, four, you know, I think I gave one of the three, the one they were in the space the entire time. But then I got to four and I was like, oh, five stars. It was that much of a level up. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm looking through volume two and I'm not seeing Casey Jones in it. Maybe he's at the end of one. I forget. There's, there's a, oh, you know what? Maybe he's not in the book. Maybe he's not in the book. Maybe he's only in the... I don't think he... So, cause, okay, so we were talking about this, because I don't have the second volume, and I just got the... So I sort of filled it in. There was a... Okay, here you go. There was a special issue. It was a Raphael special, and it came out between probably issue three and four, and that is... Right. Splinter has been kidnapped, and they can't find him. He gets pissy and goes out into the night to sort of work off his anger. This is in the movie. They they do this in the movie. It's exactly the same thing. I remember in the movie. Right. So th- and that's why it's familiar, but th- there's an issue, it's the Raphael special issue. Casey Jones shows up. They fight for a while. Then some bad guys show up and they're like, "All right, let's stop fighting, take care of them." Like, okay. So then become sort of reluctant teammates, you know. Well, I'll well, see you the later. Classic comic meet fight. Right. It's the meet cute, but meet fight in comics. He doesn't show up again until that other issue as far as I right. know. Right. So if you're just reading the volumes, you're just right. like, "What?" Which is what I did. Yeah. I, I knew he was in there because, makes sense. again, as a kid, I had two and four, and four I read a lot. And I remember that shot of Casey Jones jumping where his legs are splayed yep. out when he's got the bats in his hand. I drew that over and over mm-hmm. again. So I was like, I know he's in here. And I just was surprised it was so long towards the end because he's such an indelible character. When he took those bats out and he sort of referred to them as characters, he's like, all my own. Well, I can't take all the credit. I was like, Robert Kirkman. I instantly <laughs> thought of, of Lucille and the Walking Dead. I mean, it's yeah. it's undeniable. It's right there. Right. Not in a bad way. No. I just love going back into this world, not underground comics, but this indie comic world, which is totally different than it is now. Mm-hmm. You had Cerebus, you had this, you know, you had like Robert Crumb stuff, which is the board, risque adult stuff. Like you had this whole underground system and it was all unpolished and it was all rough around the edges, but it was all bursting with ideas. And so even if in the, the first volume of these books, their art isn't quite there, it's still the ideas are on every page. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're really... At the end of the day, the most important thing is what are the ideas in this book? It, it can be gorgeous and beautiful, but if you don't have an idea or a compelling story or a compelling bunch of characters, it doesn't matter how good the art is. It matters how good the ideas are. Mm-hmm. And these guys had it, and clearly it blew up almost right away, and you know they wrote it to lots and lots and lots of riches. What's really interesting is, one, I really like how quickly – they got good at this. This was, for me, was fun in the sense of... And the world building is so quick. Yes. It, Everything's quick. But just watching them also just develop as storytellers in a comic book medium, you know, that that last issue, you know, at the farm, there's no action in it. And it's all, like, half of it is written in, in diary form. 
but I, like I remember that very well and it really catches a mood it gives you everybody's personality it shows you the theme is that the family has to come together and like there's the thing where you know she's like we're not okay and then splinter's like all right you've all had enough time and now we get together and he forms them back up you know and they they snap too and it's just like it's such a you know bring the family back together kind of thing it's really nice like they they love each other they're part of this family and they have a they have a thing to go after I'd like to point out that Michelangelo punches a hole through. It's old wood. Casey Jones's family's barn. Well, that place. And that seems rude. I loved. Don, by the way, Donatello is always my favorite. But I love this I- issue again. I don't know if I assume that the cartoon was happening was starting to inform this stuff because he was kind of good with electronics before. But at this point, he's like he builds a generator and a, and a windmill <laughs> and he builds a hot water. Well, heater. in the be- in the beginning, he's always reading. He's he's definitely the tech guy. Yeah, yeah, no, I, they may have amped it up, for the, but he was always reading books about. I loved it technology. Though. He was the gadget guy mm-hmm. on the team. You had the Cyclops, the gadget guy, the goofball, the super intense badass. Right. Those are the four tropes on the team. Yeah. But that issue is, I mean, again, if you look through it, the images are, in, are really in my head is, it, you know, the, the storytelling Leo in the woods with the deer that he has a fight with and loses. Yo, to the deer. Yeah. You know, it, it just, it was, it was, I mean, like the difference in craft between this and where they'd been three years earlier uh, was really impressive. And it's the same thing if you read uh, Cerebus, you know, what it is at the yeah. beginning, oh, 25 sure. issues of it, starting in 1977, you know, it doesn't hold a candle visually or complex storytelling-wise to where he gets to later. And I think you said, and one difference is, who knows where this one had not become the biggest pop culture thing ever. And I, it's good for them. We might have actually lost out on some comics because these guys never did any other comics of note. Right. Didn't have to. Instead, one of them marries Julie marrying Strain. A Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I would be fine. I would be busy as well. So let's talk about the Dave Sim part of just a little bit. Sure. That's a super fantasy one where they get sucked into this vortex and they end up having to help Cerebus uh, storm a castle and steal some shit. Did Dave Sim and Gerhard just draw the character of Cerebus over the backgrounds of Kevin Eastman? That's what it looked like. I couldn't tell because Gerhard really did the backgrounds for the most part and Dave Sim would do the characters and I couldn't, I, I looked. I, I really tried to find it and I couldn't because I was really it looked hoping like I was they like, just oh. drew Cerebus and maybe Gerhard did the gray tones or something. But that's what it looked like to me. I guess. I think that was the case, which really actually totally makes sense. But at the same time, I also remember thinking like, how'd they do that? Where did Dave Sim live? Uh, Canada. So they just send him the pages with the blank spots for where Cerebus should be? Yeah, probably. It's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Isn't that great? It's, I, was, I love it. It's just like, man, can you imagine the logistics of managing that? Yeah. I mean, it could have been that like they had photo stats or whatever sent back and forth, and then you drew it based right. on that, and then sort of sized it and pasted. It. I'm sure there was scissors and glue involved. Isn't that great? <laughs> it's wonderful. I also found it interesting from a, just sort of a, I don't know, sociological point of view that you know this is the '80s. Media was already pretty hypersexualized. Comics were not nearly as balanced as they were now, especially mm-hmm. indie comics. But for the, all that, then this book has female characters, and one of them is. The one in the service book, she's somewhat scantily clad, but it's not sexualized. April O'Neil's never sexualized. She's scantily clad like the cover of a Conan book, though. Right. But I mean, there's like April O'Neil never walks around in her underwear in the house. Right. You know, we don't see her showering. I found it interesting that for two young guys in the 80s making independent comics, mm-hmm. it was very not what it's you It's kind of sweet in that way. Right. Yeah, it's true. Because right. I kept waiting point. for somebody to be like, oh, walking on April in the shower or something, because that's, you know... We'll, Mm-hmm. what i would expect it never happens so it was interesting you know there were scenes in the shower largely with stacks of turtles 
Why do the turtles wear towels around their waists since they're already walking around naked in their regular outfits? See, that's one of those questions <laughs> that, that goes like the speaking English part. And, I, know, and I was just like, don't. wait a minute. He doesn't need that towel. He's literally going to take it off and walk around like that the rest of the time. I had a really good time reading these books. I really did. I flew through them. There was a bit of nostalgia because I'd read half of them, but a bit of excitement and wonder having not read the other ones. I was super surprised to see the Cerebus crossover. I was very pleased about that. I, that really made me happy. And I was like, this must have been the first time I saw Cerebus. Or, oh, or maybe sense, yeah. in the comic shop, there was like a poster or a book or something. Oh, sure. But I could write a story with them in it. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, also Usagi Ojimbo was crossed over this at some point. They were big into, I know, anthropomorphized animals. Well, that was probably a thing then. I do want to go back and rewatch that original film. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the new animated one yet. I might do that this weekend now that I've read these. Mm-hmm. It just made me realize how much I really used to love these characters and stories. I'm not saying I'm going to start reading the books again, which are still mm-hmm. ongoing. They're on like issue 200 and something. You know, what's funny is that I remember, so this got big in 87. So, you know, I was 10. And I and the cartoon was out and I was watching it. And I, remember, I have like very specific feelings. Like I got a bunch of toys and I remember thinking, I think I'm getting too old for this. I can't, I shouldn't get these toys. And I was 10. Um, but you know, like I stuck with it for a while and I, I had all the that The toys were stuff, cool. They were well made. I know. It was, it was all good. And they came with all those different weapons and accessories. Ninjas, I don't know if, like, if you're younger than us, you don't understand like ninja stars about were. ninjas. And ninja stars. Ninja stars were huge right, back then. Canal Street and buy some. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Snake Eyes. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It was all about ninjas in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Every kid wanted to be a commando. <laughs> we didn't commando know what it was. Commando or a ninja. But... <laughs> yeah, it just sounded cool. Some of them had berets. Yeah. You get a beret, you get a mask. <laughs> I, remember, I remember as a kid, I think, because you came comics to cartoon, I came cartoon to comics. No, that wouldn't have been right. No. I don't know. I remember having a visceral reaction to them all wearing red. Maybe I had read all the comics, forgot about them, watched the show, came back to the comics, and was like, whoa. I remember mm-hmm. as a kid being, you know, like, like what's happening here? The red looks cool and uniform. It's just like occasionally I was like, what? And there was that one issue with the guest artists where they're all wearing do-rags instead of the bandanas. But they were preteen. They were younger. Was There's it? There's a reason for it. Yeah, it's the beginning. It's the flashbacks. They're the, the pre-teenage Ninja Turtles in the title. Uh, Trust me. Oh, you're right. Pre-teenage Ninja Turtles. That's right. Yeah. So there was a reason for it. I was also, I thought that looked cool as shit. It does look cool. I was a big fan of that. <laughs> that was more ninja action. I liked that story. Yeah. Yeah, that was a great one. And that's probably the kind of thing that you were hoping for more of. That's where Splinter changes bodies with some dying guy in Japan. I love that he's like, yeah, okay, let's do it. You could die. Now, nah, let's get on with it. Because he's a good dude. Rat. Rat dude. Good rat he's dude. He's a good rat. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of bummed it was over. But I, it also ends on such an interesting note, like we talked about. Like, yeah. They're emotionally healing themselves from getting like their asses kicked by the foot. And it ends on a really nice note where they're all bringing April breakfast in bed. Mm-hmm. on the road to healing but it was like you know it was a nice ending to the story but also i was like what happens next but sometimes it's okay to end the story and not read more so i remember in the team but if it had been volume five i would have got it and read it i remember there there was definitely triceratons make a return for sure and in the teens well there's two of them walking around new york aren't there oh yeah that's true you know like i would say that 75 percent of this that i read i read very academically you know like oh that's interesting that's what's happening more and and then Really, that fourth book hit me in a way that was both it's emotional. Right. But also just like it really, all of a sudden, I remembered all of it. And then at the same time, you've got old Josh, who knows a lot more about comics, going, oh, wow, they had it. And he had a little connection with young Josh, who was like, you recognize there was something rad about this one. And I was kind of proud of him. Also, me. nunchucks. Yeah, sure. 
<laughs> I loved, not just in this, but in, in all sorts of them, when uh, they'd have to use different weapons. Oh, yeah. there's, there's one where, I think it's in the preteen one, is that like they have some slightly different weapons that they're using and they talk about it. He's like, can I just use the chucks? And he's like, no, you must respect the whatever. And I was <laughs> like, oh, I love that shit. When they pull out like the different weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had the three-pronged one. Right. It had the three staffs attached by chains and somebody i think i think one of the storm shadow versions came one of them had that yes yes yeah i don't remember what it's called but it was cool this was really fun i'm glad the patrons suggested it in the hangout i'm glad we took them up on it i'm glad to have finally read all four volumes i guess the first what did i say 12 issues of it of yeah 12 issues of Teenage ninja turtles and change apparently for me (laughs) <laughs> a little extra for Josh. That was cool. And that's one of the benefits of being a patron is you get to sort of have an impact on and, and what everyone gets to listen to and enjoy. So thanks for that. If you want to be one at patreon.com slash FM, we would appreciate it. Let's talk about the ratings on this. Ratings. So, it's tough. I think I'm going to do two ratings here. Okay. So one is if I take the average of, because I rated each one individually as I read them. I rated two before I read four, you know. So if I take all those together, it's basically 3.8. However, that's the academic step back try to be objective to the craft view the emotional view the interest the excitement the place in comics history the growth of the artists through the course of the whole project like Mm -hmm. if this was a one volume instead of four then it's a five but it's a academically it's a 3.8 for each one together but if it's one volume it's a five as terms of all those things together Uh, this is tough i'm just gonna say four and a half i'm just gonna say that Okay. How does it feel to say it? How does that emotionally feel I for you? I don't feel like... How does little a, Josh feel? I don't... F- <laughs> I don't feel like there's a way to do it with one number. It's and that's hard. where I think the challenge is. So I went with four and a half. It's very high. It's not perfect. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that like this is Watchmen. You need to go out and read this book. But in the context of everything that happened, how old they were, when it happened, how that affects comics that come after it, it's difficult not to rate it very... Not just comics. I mean, pop culture. Pop culture, yeah. And, you know, when you read it, you can see why. Because sometimes, you know, something will be a big deal in the world. And you go back, you read the source material, like, that is not very good. But I think being astute comic book analysts like we are, I can see it. I, I go, okay, I, I see, I understand. You know, there's something there. You can see the there. lightning in the bottle. You can see yes. how they, they found something. It's there from day one, too, and they were aware of it. It's just, it just happens that other people finally picked up on it, but it was there. And right. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, that was fun. That was cool. All right, so that was our November... Booksplode, patreon.com slash fanboy again is the patrons who unlocked this show. They also picked this book by accident. We didn't officially, but they did it, and it was a good idea, so we ran with it. We'll be back with another Booksplode in January, unless we have to do an emergency one in December. We haven't decided yet. Depends on what happens with Josh's Talksplodes, but we never know. We're just going to say things are fluid in the world of iFanboy. But again, this show is the sister show, the Talksplode, Josh's interview show. His last one was with Jason Aaron. There should be another one in December, another one, the close of the year out. Yep, And of course, we have our weekly Pick of the Week show where Josh and I and sometimes Ryan help other people review the week's comics. All those shows are at fanboy.com. We also have our monthly media explode show that is also unlocked by the patrons. There's a lot going on as we stumble through the end of the year. And I, I, just, I just don't want this cold anymore. I'd like it to go. That's why we are fluid, but also you should make sure. I'm drinking lots of those. There fluids. you go. I've, I've got a giant 30-ounce cup of water here that I've been making my way through the show. So yeah. So that's, that was fun. That was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles books one through four, published originally by first graphic novel. I guess now there, there's probably collections published by IDW. Yes. Uh, hardcover that's, I mean, that's who has it now. And yeah. they're doing a lot of Turtles books. 
sort of ongoing as well. I think they're headed towards 150 right now. The last Ronin was a big deal. I get emails from Kevin Eastman. I do too. Or his every company. Day. Every day. I don't, I don't know why he's still doing it, but that dude loves comics. I mean, like like that. One of them bought a jet at some point. It was Kevin Eastman bought a jet right. and married a penthouse pet. That's how much money they were making. I have myself been to Northampton. I have been inside their building mm-hmm. that they owned and worked out of for many, many years. I have seen the basement in which they kept all of the original art is still all there. Not in the building because they, they left the building. But I've, I've been in the room where it was. I felt the vibrations. It's very cool. Because Kevin Eastman is from Maine and Maine is small. At some point, my mother was at a wedding and he was there. And I guess he had comics or whatever. But like I have a Kevin Eastman signed comic. I want to say it's issue 15, 16, 17. That's something like awesome. That, with a little turtle head sketch in it to my name. I, ha- I have that. I've had it forever. Yeah, I mean, Stephen King's really famous, but I think that Maine tends to forget this other guy who really (laughs) made a very big impact also. I mean, let's be honest. Who had a bigger impact on popular culture? Mm -hmm. I think you could make the argument. I mean, like, I'm not going to say Stephen King hasn't, but you can't just dismiss Kevin Eastman. No. I think it's fair to say that Stephen King made horror as a genre much more mainstream than it ever would have been. And so in that way, more so. The work. And dozens of movies and TV shows. But like, you know, they're still making Turtles movies. Yeah. So that's true. Oof. All right. Well, this was fun. It was we'll fun. We'll come back in January with a new set of books. And until then, I'm Connor. I'm Josh. This was not a chore at all. No. My name's DMC with the mic in my hand. And I'm chilling and cooling just like a snowman. So open your eyes, lend us an ear. We want to say Merry Christmas.